Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the American College of Trial Lawyers podcast, Trial Tested. I am Amy Gunn, a fellow from St. Louis, and today I have the great privilege of spending time with historian and author Dr. Heather Ann Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a historian, author, and activist on the forefront of prison reform. She received her bachelor's degree and master's from the University of Michigan and a Ph.D. in American history from Princeton University. She's the author of three books, including Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy, which won the Pulitzer Prize in History in 2017, and the Book Prize from the New York City Bar Association in 2017, the Bancroft Prize in American History and Diplomacy in 2017, and many other accolades. Dr. Thompson has served as consulting producer and historical advisor on many productions, including a CNN miniseries, the CBS Morning News, and the National Geographic documentary regarding Attica. She has served as an advisory position on the board of many organizations, including the National Academy of Sciences Blue Ribbon Panel, Prison Policy Initiative, Life of the Law, Center of Community Change, and the Urban History Association. Dr. Thompson currently teaches at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor as Collegiate Professor of History and African American Studies. Hello, Dr. Thompson. Thank you so much for joining us. So great to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you as a presenter at our annual conference. This year, it's going to be in Rome in September. So thank you so much for agreeing to share your knowledge about your Pulitzer Prize winning book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. I noticed that your topic at the conference is a little bit different, and that is Attica 1971 of Requiems Denied, Reckonings Deferred, and Justice Reimagined. And I want to ask you, before we get into your book and your presentation, can you tell us what drew you to history? Well, I have to confess it was a winding path there. I wasn't actually sure whether I would end up in actually history, law school, med school. I just knew that I wanted one day to do something that would hopefully make a difference in the world in some kind of way. And I think I ended up in history because I was just somebody that kept asking the question of why did things end up the way that they did before I could get to the how to fix it part. And so that landed me time and again in these classes, which was sort of just the means to the end. You know, how is it that things are the way that they are today? And I think I just got so enamored with the history method, which was really the investigative method. If nothing else, history allows you the opportunity, you know, as an investigator, as a person who's always trying to figure out what really went down, if you will, you know, what is it that led us to where we are today? What really happened? You know, what maybe we think happened or because there's always been something that's kind of bothered me about the patness of narrative. 
alternatives. Nothing really kind of made sense in its kind of simplicity when we get narratives handed down to us. So I think just really from the time I went to college from the very beginning, that's kind of what directed me towards history classes. And then lo and behold, you know, I think it's also when you're an undergraduate, someone says, oh, you know, you're pretty good at this. And (laughs) you end up where people kind of inadvertently maybe uh, give you some positive feedback. And then here I am. (laughs) Right, right. That is so similar to what I hear from a lot of lawyers as well. I want to figure things out. I want to solve problems. I want to investigate, as you said. So in that way, I can very much see why law school may have also been on your list of potential careers, because reading your book, you really are trying to get to the bottom with facts and your investigation. I think that's right. And I think the funny thing about the whole enterprise of being a historian is that the lines between the present and the past are much more blurry than people really realize. And it's not because historians are reading the past backwards. It's because if you're really good at investigative work, whether you are a lawyer or whether you're a historian, your method is very similar, which is you have to start with the facts first. You can't write them backwards. You have to actually figure out what happened before you can decide what the argument is, you know, before you decide what you're presenting. And then once you figure out what happened, you have to sit with it for a minute. And it really has implications. It has implications for everything else. And I've often thought since I became a historian many times about, you know, wow, I wished sometimes that I then had, you know, bagged it and gone to law school, because I do think that there are these implications about now I wish that I could do something about it, you know, what I found out or whatever. But then I realized, nah, let me stick to the writing of the story, because I do think that's important too. you know, getting it actually down on paper, what really happened, not what we imagined had happened. But you can't possibly believe that the publishing of this book wasn't, quote, doing something about it. Just reading the book and reading the aftermath, if you will, you certainly have done something about it. Don't you feel that way? I hope so. I mean, if nothing else, one of the things about writing Blood in the Water, it was really, I mean, the process of writing this particular history book, which is, you know, about an event that happened 50 years ago this past September. It was a real journey, one that I had not predicted would take so long, one that I had not predicted would be really quite so arduous. You know, that's not the typical path of a history book. It took so long because in this case, the facts, you know, what had really happened were deliberately obscured. And in that sense, I do feel like I was very grateful that I was able to tell the story. I do think it did something because the stories in there, the stories of the guards, the stories of the prisoners, those people had been trying to tell their stories and get them out and really get the truth of what happened out for those 50 years. And to the extent that I was able to finally get those to the public, Uh, I was very grateful for that, for sure. For our listeners who maybe don't know the true history of the Attica uprising, can you give us a summary? I know that's a lot because your book says a lot, but give us an overview. Sure. I mean, one of the ways to best sum up Attica is that, you know, prisons in our country have always been really a fundamental part of the way we have 
thought justice is best handed out. You know, someone does something wrong and we have for a very long time thought that, well, the best way to handle that is we send them to prison. The problem is throughout American history, prisons have always been these really, really notorious places. And in the 1960s and 70s, there was this moment of real awakening that these places were so terrible. They were not doing what Americans thought they would do. They were not making the country safer. They were not making people better. They were not returning people to society improved. They were not improving public safety. And so there was this moment of real revelation and an attempt to reform criminal justice and to improve prison conditions on the inside. And central to that story was this uprising that took place at the Attica State Correctional Facility in upstate New York. And it was famous because in this particular case, the world watched as prisoners were in charge of this facility for four days and four nights. And it was a really incredibly dramatic saga. There was negotiations between the state of New York and prisoners. And what is really kind of so poignant about this story is that after these four long days and nights of negotiations, it ended really horrifically when the state of New York decides to storm this prison, really when everybody is on site and saying, don't do this, negotiations can be had, this can be resolved peacefully. And uh, the governor at the time, Nelson Rockefeller, decided to storm the prison. The carnage was extraordinary. Guards and prisoners alike killed 128 people, shot some of them six and seven times, 39 men shot to death. And what became so horrific about it was that this trauma, these really murders, were then covered up, denied. The trauma, the pain. And those families, both guard and prisoners' families, were really just shoved to the side, told that this didn't happen, told that it had been nothing but a fraternity hazing, because then, of course, they are tortured for weeks and months thereafter. And at every level of highest power, when people who had the ability to do something to make this right, to acknowledge what had happened, to stand by doing the right thing, instead, they doubled down, made it worse. And the consequences of all of this were not just for those people, but they were for the nation. Because what in fact happened was those same people who created that carnage told the American people that the deaths in that prison, that the carnage in that prison had been caused by the prisoners, not the state troopers who those high-powered people had sent in there. So the consequences of this were not just for the people who had been harmed, not for the widows, not for the children who were now fatherless. These consequences resonated for really the entire nation for the next 50 years. People became extremely hardened on the possibility of criminal justice reform. And in fact, they began calling for much harsher sentences. They began to think that the prisoners at Attica had not really deserved better conditions, that we really needed harsher conditions. We needed longer sentence. We needed the death penalty again that we had walked away from as a nation. And all of this was down to really lies told about what had happened in this fundamentally important uprising with the world watching. You know, the lies went out on the front page of the New York Times, the LA Times, newspapers across this nation. So getting this story wrong to the point of history was fundamentally important. 
and not telling the story correctly had a profound consequence. And one can only wonder, actually, how many moments there are like that where the public narrative, whatever it was, changed the course of history in its incorrectness, right? One can think for a moment about the 1960s in general. We had all of these moments where extraordinary amount of violence in that decade was so often, frankly, state violence, right? Kent State, Chicago, you know, 68, Orangeburg, 69, all of these moments. And yet somehow we come out of that decade saying, who's violent? Hippies are violent. Feminists are violent. Black people are violent. You know, we come out of George Floyd's summer and we say, who's violent? Black people in the street are violent. But, you know, we have to ask ourselves something. Wait a minute. (laughs) Where do we get this idea from? And we get it so often from where the reigning narratives are coming from. And those aren't people asking the questions about what really happened. They're asking the officials what really happened. And the officials are often the ones who have created some of the worst harm in that moment. Uncovering the lies appears to be the main motivating factor behind this book. How did you get started with it? Sort of like becoming a historian. I often feel embarrassed telling such an unglamorous story of how this all happened. In this case, I had finished my first book, which was about the city of Detroit, where I grew up. It was a story about civil rights in Detroit and how that city had earned the moniker, you know, worst city in the world, murder capital of the world, the place nobody wanted to be from, and discovered, again, a much more complicated narrative about what, in fact, had led Detroit to be Detroit, what had, in fact, happened in Detroit. I wanted to do another book about civil rights in this period, and I came across the story of Attica, and I was fascinated. This was a story about civil rights behind bars, or so I thought. That's all it was. And it wasn't until I started to try to write that book and realize that all of the documents that the state of New York had related to Attica were almost impossible to get that they were constantly redacted or that they were unavailable or that they just weren't there anymore, that I began to just be like, wait, what is going on here? This is a public prison. This is a state institution that the taxpayers of New York should be able to get information about. This was a major event. This was a case that went on for 30 years to the tune of, you know, just extraordinary dollars that, again, taxpayers funded and we can't know what happened. And so it just became this, frankly, uh, journey to figure out, you know, if the state of New York is not going to cough up these records, well, okay, who has the copy or who had the original or, you know, (laughs) how am I going to tell this story? And that became the thing, you know, I'm going to find the guards, I'm going to find the lawyers, I'm going to find the judges. I mean, one of the most important judges, Judge Teleska out of the Western District, who became the person who helped to settle this on behalf, ultimately, of the guards and the prisoners an extraordinary man who was one of Rockefeller's friends who just ultimately can't stand the injustice of it all. He's one of the few who does the right things in the end. This was a journey that had no plan, but became really just about getting the story out. And the book was published in 2016. So this is over a decade. Yeah, 13 years. Of your time digging and digging. What made you not just move on, give up? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I mean, part of it, of course, is that one's life also goes on. I mean, I have a family, I have children, I have a life. And, you know, meanwhile, of course, I was also writing about another thing that was unfolding at the time, which was the sort of massive growth of prisons in the United States. And I was writing a lot about that and trying to make sense of that in real time. As I was doing this book, I was trying to make sense of, you know, the kind of the criminal justice system in the nation. So that also took time. But I think that what kind of kept me at the book so kind of fundamentally was the people that I was meeting along the way. I mean, it was the prisoners who had survived Attica. It was the corrections officers who had survived Attica. It was sitting in people's basements, hearing them tell their stories. I remember interviewing Tom Wicker from the New York Times. I remember interviewing the whistleblower Malcolm Bell. I remember interviewing people like Judge Teleska, so many lawyers everybody I talked to, it didn't really matter who they were. Really, it didn't matter. It didn't matter whether they were a judge, a formerly incarcerated person, a corrections officer, a family member of any one of these people. Everybody broke down telling the story. Everybody, 30 years later, 40 years later, everybody just couldn't bear the weight of what they had either not been able to prevent, what they themselves had endured, what their parent was still suffering in terms of PTSD or flashbacks. And the weight of this event was still so heavy on people. I just felt like, I don't know, you know, we somehow had to get this out. We somehow had to tell the full story. I read in your introduction that the decision to publish this book for you was agonizing. You write, I am well aware, and it haunts me, that my decision to name individuals who have spent the last 45 years trying to remain unnamed will reopen many old wounds and cause much new suffering. That old wounds were never allowed to heal and that new suffering is now a certainty, however, is, I believe, the responsibility of officials in the state of New York. It is these officials who have chosen repeatedly since 1971 to protect the politicians and members of law enforcement who caused so much trauma. So here it is. You've got this decision to make. You've put so much time and effort into this. And ultimately, of course, you decided to publish, knowing that it would cause some harm. But ultimately making that decision, because it seems to me that this is a story in our history, in our American history, that needed to be told. Well, yes, but, you know, the agonizing part for me was that this is not a story where even those who committed harm had passed on, you know, and every action has a reaction. And I can, you know, share with you a story of exactly how this played out. For example, in this book, I was able to name some of the shooters of those people. These are shooters, troopers who had been protected by those high up officials for, you know, at that point, 45 years. And not just that, because I was also referring to the pain, of course, that I was dredging up for so many people by even publishing this. And also for those shooters who I had named, I was acutely aware that those people, of course, had children and spouses and grandchildren. I couldn't not write what I now knew because, of course, to do that would have been to continue the cover-up. 
And I'm a historian. I'm not able, once I know what really happened, to not write what really happened. But it is nevertheless ethically and morally extremely difficult to know that when you write something down that has not been known before, that there are ripple effects of that. To write down that somebody's parent was conducting medical experiments on the incarcerated, that's hard. To write down that somebody's father shot some incarcerated person multiple times in the eyes and the face gratuitously, so much so that that shooter themselves was haunted by what they did, and that that person walked away scot-free, that that person was allowed to retire on the second day, you know, was actually facilitated, that there was never consequences for that person. And how this played out was that a report, I remember not just one reporter, countless reporters said to me, do you think that that was ethical of you to name the names of those shooters when those people have never even had their day in court? I got quite a large degree of flack for that, I have to say. And I thought on that really, really hard. And, you know, ultimately, I, first of all, I pointed out that I really had no choice because, again, once you know something, you have to write what happened. But I also said to them, I said, but you know what I find so, so interesting? None of you were troubled when I wrote down that there's a prisoner in the book by the name of Big Black. That's the name he gave himself, Big Black. And I said, none of you were troubled when I wrote down that Big Black had been accused by everybody of castrating guard Mike Smith. None of you were troubled by that. None of you were concerned that his family members would be horrified by that charge. None of you were concerned by all of those prisoners who had been accused of heinous things on the day. None of you were concerned when I named those people and what they were accused of who didn't have a day in court. But for these men, you were concerned. And that goes to the heart of the hypocrisy of our system. But I reported it all even-handedly, right? I told you what was known at the time and what was reported at the time by people. And that's what a historian does. But it was hard every time. I didn't like reporting any of it. <laughs> because, again, the implications have ripple effects. And with that reporting... And the interviews, the many, many, many interviews that you conducted, it does sound like you did receive positive feedback from many of those folks that you talked to in terms of teaching them perhaps the truth of the situation. And as you say, giving them a vehicle to tell their story, to almost confess, it sounds like. I think so. I do think that what was really cathartic for people, sometimes off the record, was just to say what really happened. I got a lot of letters from people, even after the book was published, members of law enforcement, you know, members who had been there that no one even knew that they had been there that day, telling me, you know, Dr. Thompson, it was even worse than what you wrote. The torture, the abuse, the racism the gratuitous harm that we caused. And those were people that honestly were haunted. And the complexity of the story was really also something I tried my very, very best to capture because it wasn't a simple case of the good and the bad. And that was the thing about the story. We would never have known all the horror that happened inside of that prison had it not been, frankly, for members of law enforcement who came forward and said what had happened to. You know, there was, for example, a trooper by the name of Gerard Smith who came forward and it was his testimony, ultimately in a civil trial, 
that made clear that the troopers entering that prison had taken off their identifying badges to make sure that nobody could then report who had done what. But it was his testimony that made that fact on the record. You know, it was a lot of examples. There was so many medics, National Guardsmen who testified, actually one of whom went to the FBI and tried to get on the record horrible cases of sodomy, horrible things that he saw. I mean, nobody did anything about it in the Justice Department again, but he tried. And that's why at the end of the day, this was a story, and I say this, anyone who wants to hear it, this was not actually a story about the bad guys being the people on the ground. This was actually the people who never got their hands dirty. Right. It was the people in the lushest, most swanky accommodations, the people above reproach who, in my book, I think gets the harshest treatment in the end. And give us an example of that. I mean, frankly, it was the Rockefeller administration and all the apparatus that made what he did possible. It was him personally. I mean, it was after the actual retaking of the prison that he okayed, despite everybody, including his own, one of his top advisors, who was a very well-decorated top official in the army, said, basically, if you do this, you're even going to kill the hostages, you know, the hostages who had been well-protected by the prisoners because they knew that that was their bargaining chip. That was the way that they were going to get out, the way negotiations were going to continue. He said, if you go in there, you will kill them. And he did it anyway. He gets very, very, very low regard, in my view. Can I ask you, because Governor Rockefeller went on to be the vice president in 1974, and I believe he passed away in 1979, was there ever a time frame that he appeared to come clean, so to speak? Or was that never going to happen? No, in fact... Attica had everything to do with his presidential ambitions. He was a liberal Republican, and the Republican Party had moved much more in a conservative direction, and he understood that Attica was going to be his way of establishing his more conservative credentials, or at least that's what he wanted it to do. And he was very deliberate about that. In the wake of Attica, I was the person that had actually found the tapes between he and Nixon. And he basically makes clear, you know, that Nixon rewards him for the way he handled Attica. And Nixon basically has one question about all the carnage, and that was, is this a black business? And Nelson Rockefeller says, why, yes, Mr. President, it was, which, of course, it wasn't. It was a multiracial business and every guard that died there was white. But, you know, this was all about showing he was tough on crime. And in fact, right after Attica is when he ushers in the Rockefeller drug laws that we know is going to fundamentally change this country for the worse. So, yeah, he never atones for it. It almost trips him up on the hearings on the eve of the vice presidential moment for him, but it doesn't. And it doesn't in so large a part because of the way in which this was covered up. Basically, it is when he is about ready to become vice president that the whole thing is ordered to shut down. Right. And that's not a coincidence. No, of course it is not. And to the horror, to the absolute shame of really the state, but also the nation. And so, yeah, it is his administration, but it is also, you know, what people will know if they read the book. And this is why I'm so really honored to be able to present this to trial lawyers, is that this is a story about decades and decades of litigation. 
This is a story about decades of criminal defense work and also prosecution. But this is also a story about decades of civil litigation. And it is a fascinating primer for law students. In fact, I give tons of talks actually to law students, probably more than to history folks. In fact, many more to law groups because watching that play out, right, how that criminal case came together and how this sort of mass grassroots legal defense effort came together in the wake of Attica, the immediate wake of Attica, and then to look at this decades, three decades long civil suit and how that plays out is just extraordinary. And I think that there were some real lines of good and evil there too, in terms of, you know, who was on what side. You write about a lawsuit, I believe it was in the late 70s, early 80s, Jones versus State. I believe it was attorney William Cunningham who took the leads on that. And I ultimately believe that it was Judge Quigley who entered an order and an award in favor of Mrs. Jones. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So while a huge part of this book, of course, is focusing on the incarcerated prisoners, the criminal cases that were filed against them in the wake of Attica, by the way, not a single indictment, no member of law enforcement is ever held accountable, even though they were responsible for all of the gun deaths in Attica. But many, many prisoners, 62, are indicted after Attica. So there's all these criminal cases. And then the formerly incarcerated folks also file the civil suit. But meanwhile, there's a story that is also in the book, very, very powerful story about the guard families because they are killed as well. And in the wake of Attica, the state does something equally, or really it's the Rockefeller folks as well, equally diabolical with them, which is that they essentially use the workman's compensation system to swindle those folks. They show up at the hospital rooms of the injured corrections officers and the homes of the widowed corrections officers' wives and basically hand them these meager checks and sort of say, look, you know, Mrs. Cunningham, Mrs. Cunningham, who's all these children, we are so, so sorry about the death of your husband. You know, here's something a little to tide you over. And these are very poor families. This is a working class community of Attica, New York or Batavia, New York. And they cash the checks, sometimes, you know, $42, $120, but they never told them. And I was able to show deliberately, never told them that by cashing these checks, they had elected a remedy under New York state law to never be able to sue their employer under the workman's compensation law for wrongful death. So there is a whole story in the book about these then desperate guard families trying to sue the state of New York in the court of claims, failing at every juncture because they are ineligible. But one woman did not sign the check. And that was Linda Jones. And her case is allowed to go forward. And it is a fascinating story because they try everything to find the signed check. (laughs) They are combing every box everywhere to find the signed check. But there is no signed check. And she's awarded millions of dollars and she gets interest on it. And it's an extraordinary story. But, you know, what's so amazing, too, is because even in her case, she gets all this money and they try to still take it away. And the prisoners ultimately get a civil judgment, an extraordinary civil judgment, by the way, by an all white upstate jury. And they get this amazing civil judgment. But even then, even then, it gets almost taken away. I mean, it does get taken away in the appeals court. Even then, the state lawyers try to take it away. 
But again, there's heroes and heroines in this book because then there's a judge who then settles it for them. So this is an extraordinary legal story. It's an extraordinary legal story about how no matter how much injustice there is in this world, the law is also an extraordinarily powerful tool for remedying injustice should any lawyer feel low about that or jaded about that or kind of get so beaten down sometimes by feeling sometimes that that can't happen anymore or forget how powerful it can be. I think this book can really remind one just how powerful it can be. And not because one has necessarily even all the resources on one's side. In the case of the criminal piece of this story, I mean, it was a grassroots legal defense effort that literally brings the state of New York's criminal prosecution to its knees. And the book does take you through so many emotions. As I was reading through it, it just kind of makes you so upset about what happened and frankly, what continues to happen. But you're right. There are little stories in here that do make you feel like there is some hope. And one of them is Mrs. Jones' story. And I want to ask you about Mike Smith, a prison guard who was a hostage I read in your book where after the prisoners had their civil verdict in around 2000, there was a meeting with survivors of hostages and families. And most of the folks there were still under the blanket of the lies that had been told for the previous 30 years. But Mike Smith told his story. Can you remind us of that? Yeah, it's, again, one of these just heartening, unexpected moments in the book and really reflective of these unexpected moments in our nation and in our lives that I personally cling to and I think we all need to, especially lately, which is that, you know, you got this guy. He was born and raised in a small town in upstate New York, a white kid who goes to become a prison guard because there's really no other job. No reason in the world that he would not necessarily be a racist like so many of the people he had grown up with. No reason in the world that he would be anything other than, you know, stereotypes of what we would imagine. But he isn't. And he goes to work at Attica and he works in the metal shop at Attica and he's well liked by the prisoners he works with. And when Attica is getting worse and worse and worse and the prisoners want better conditions and they first, by the way, start writing letters to the administration, basically asking, going, working through the system, look, you know, we're not asking you to get out of here. We just need to have more than 63 cents a day of worth of food. We need to have more than one shower every two weeks. We need to have more than one roll of toilet paper a month. We are not asking for luxury. We just need to survive so that we can get out of here after serving our time. And he says, look, this seems reasonable to me. This is a good idea. And when Attica finally erupts, they protect him. And he goes out into the yard. He's a hostage. And when all is said and done, and there is a retaking of the prison, he is up on the catwalks and ends up very, very badly shot across his abdomen. He ends up having countless surgeries, but up on the catwalk right before the troopers come in, there's this poignant scene between he and one of the guards, really a friend, Don Noble, who had helped him into the yard, protected him. And they're up there and they're terrified because they know that at this point, the guards are not any more worth anything to the administration than the prisoners are. Of course, that was the hope, right? The hope of the prisoners was that the guards would you know, be something 
something that would keep the attack from happening. And they're exchanging, you know, if I don't get out of here, please tell my wife I love her. And exchanging particulars, right, is a horribly poignant scene. And yet Mike gets gunned down, I mean, basically. And it is his injury that the state of New York says was a castration. They go out, they say that a guard has been castrated by a prisoner. That lie is what goes out over the front page of the New York Times. It is a horrific lie. But Mike Smith, he's been so badly treated, countless surgeries, never is the same again. But rather than be bitter at the prisoners, he ends up just hanging in there and trying to tell what really happened. And when the prisoners finally get their civil suits and all the guards have gotten nothing, they're angry. You know, how in the world have the prisoners gotten money and we've got nothing? And he does his very best to try to unite everybody and try to say, look, the only ones who've been lied to here is all of us. You know, the state of New York is the one who have been lying. They've been pitting us against each other. And he is this remarkable, remarkable man. It is really something. It is a really remarkable story. And I thought it was so well written in that exchange when he's telling his story or the truth, his truth to the families that the daughter of William, Billy Quinn, was in the audience and she had that same mindset why the prisoners, they were the cause of this, why would they be awarded, and listened to Mike Smith's story, and her mind was changed. Yep. And she goes on to then fight for justice for all of the correction officers' families. And she becomes a real champion for justice for them. She was five years old when her dad was killed, and she becomes a real champion for them. It is really something. And of course, there's always fault lines and there's always tensions and there remain tensions between, of course, corrections officers and prisoners. But what it reminds you of is that those kinds of tensions, even today, between people who have so much, in fact, in common, you know, economic uncertainty, job uncertainty, really just incredible amounts of anxiety about the world that they're living in. When they start to turn on each other, it's a really good idea to ask, who is it actually that is stirring this pot? Who is it actually that is sowing these seeds of rancor? I was so struck in the Attica story by how lack of information about what had really gone down was extremely costly on countless, countless lives, but that the people who were at the top it wasn't just that they were slightly benefiting from that at the bottom. They were massively benefiting from that. And I think we can just, without drawing too fine a point, we can see that happening today. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And it just reminds me of why we have to get narratives correct. And it's not because we're writing history backwards. It's actually quite the opposite. We start with what actually happened and everything else just falls into place. And that's why it's protected information, by the way. That's why nobody actually wants you to figure out what really happened, not because it's a conspiracy, not because I walk around as a conspiracy theorist, quite the opposite. It's because that information is very, very upsetting to people to have it out there. And isn't it true that most of the information is still being protected, still being shielded by the state of New York? Absolutely. And that is the thing. If before I, you know, leave this planet, that is if I have no other task, that is the thing that I hope to accomplish 
We need a governor of conscience in the state of New York. And I believe, you know, lawyers and judges of conscience in the state of New York to demand that all of the Attica records be deposited in the New York State Archives and made fully, and I do mean fully, and unredactedly available to the citizens of the United States of America. And the reason is because Attica was a state institution run by the American people, paid for by the American people, and everybody has a right to know what happened in that institution. And I will take it a step further. Every prison in the United States of America and jail, every correctional facility in the state of the nation must be run fully transparently. Right now, you cannot know what goes on behind bars in this country easily, not even close to easily. I teach this topic and I can't find out hardly any information. You can't write an article about it. Getting information out of any Department of Corrections is almost impossible. And yet these institutions run at the complete pleasure of the American taxpayer. And they are in charge of human beings, including more children than any other country on this planet. And it is immoral, unethical, and unconscionable that they are not absolutely and 100% open and transparent to the American public. And anybody who would say otherwise, there is literally no reason for it. So that's my next mission. I was going to say, one of my questions is, what is your next <laughs> what is your next mission? But I want to ask you before that, what are the excuses or defenses 50 plus years later being given for not fulfilling this, for not putting these records in the archives? Well, it's just stunningly unclear. Sometimes it is grand jury testimony, but I will tell you as someone who's filed freedom of information requests where everything was granted, and then later on when I got too close to what the shooter's names were that I had asked for, then denied on the grounds of grand jury testimony, but I know for a fact that there was not a stitch of grand jury testimony in what I'd asked for because I actually have the entire index of those files from a former attorney general. So I know I didn't ask for any grand jury testimony and that was the grounds that they were denied. So I don't know. Privacy sometimes, grand jury testimony sometimes. It is the morass of bureaucracy. So the beauty of it is nobody has to say anything. The thing about redaction is that you don't have to actually really give a reason. You just can do anything you want. It is just unconscionable. And that is similarly with access to correctional facilities and institutions of punishment in this country. You just have to say privacy, security. But meanwhile, unimaginable horrors go on in our name, and yet we expect jurors to show up every day and with good conscience and hope that they send human beings into these places and that they will come out and make our society safer. And that is unethical and it is immoral. And my feeling about it is that if you would not send your own children into those places if they committed harm and you know in your body, in your soul, and in your bones that you would do anything possible, anything to avoid sending your own child into one of those places if they committed harm, including the most egregious harms, if you know that you would do 
anything rather than send them into an American prison or jail, and we all know we would, then you know that it is immoral and unethical to not to try to change these places and to make them transparent. And yet, I think most of us don't dare think about that, want to believe that out of sight, out of mind. And it's just so compelling, the argument that you make, because there are so many ways that people can end up in prison that truly are out of their control based on circumstance and upbringing and where you're fortunate or unfortunate enough to be born and to whom. Just getting to the bottom of why these things happen and the state of the justice system and the prison system now, it just seems like such an impossible task. But it starts, again, with reporting such as yours and books such as yours. But what you were saying just now reminded me of another article, I think, that you wrote or report regarding Robert Martinson and his 1974 report indicating that the justice system was a failure. And I believe it was titled something such as What Works? And his answer was Nothing Works that led to the idea and was built upon rehabilitation doesn't work, so don't bother. And that the timing of that, I wanted to ask you, because that was a 1974 report. Of course, Attica was 1971. It occurred to me that those two things together could perhaps be included in this notion of, quote, getting tough on crime, which continues to be such a theme in both of our political parties. Everyone is terrified of looking like they're not, quote, tough on crime. So how do we change the narrative on this to believe that you can be tough on crime, but not inhuman to the prisoners? Well, I mean, there's, of course, volumes and there's libraries filled with theories and potential answers to that very, very complex question. But another way to really come at it is, in some respects, so much simpler than I think people really want to kind of let their minds consider. And it is nonpartisan also, which is helpful. And that is that whether it was 1971 or 1973 or whether it is the present day, there's always the question of institutional reform. And that is, you know, is the behemoth that we have erected fixable? Does it work? And what do we do to fix it? And I think that it's some level No matter what party we have been in, no matter what decade we've been in, everybody agrees that the apparatus that we have erected as it is, is a failure. There is not a single person with good conscience that can say that warehousing human beings works. That is a fact. It has never worked. And all we have done in the last 50 years is we've doubled down on this idea that caging human beings is going to make our society safer. Never has, never will, never has done in any society. And I don't care what party you're in, if you just simply take the time to do the research, if you put human beings in five by seven cages, you don't make them better. You don't make them smarter. You don't make them more humane. You don't make them more kind, loving, compassionate, and you certainly do not return them better to society. But here's the simple part. Do we know of other societies that have figured out what does work? 
Yes, we have lots of societies we can look at that have much, much, much lower crime rates than we do, much more safety than we do. And yes, we know that. We choose to ignore it time and time again, but we know it. We know that if you invest in education, if you invest in families, if you invest in communities, we know that crime rates go down, families are happier, and we know that that is always going to be more beneficial to a society than putting those monies in criminal justice. We know it. We've always known it. Every society that's had success with it has shown it. Okay? It's just that simple. And what we also know is we don't even have to look at other countries to know it. You know how we know it? Because if you look at this country, if we look at communities that have the lowest crime rate and the highest success rate with their children and the lowest crime rate and the highest happiness index, guess what they share in common? The greatest investment in their schools, in their communities, and in education, just generally. What a surprise. That's not looking at Sweden. That's not looking at Norway. That's not looking at Denmark. That's actually just looking in our own backyards. And guess what else we notice when we look in our own backyards? What's the worst way to handle it? Through punishment, through abuse, through putting people in cages, through censorship, through aggression, through isolation, through cutting off people from their families. And not only do we know it, Here's the other thing that's so interesting. If you ask people that have any means whatsoever from any party, Republican or Democrat, and they have a child who's fallen afoul of the law, and you say to them, what would you do if your child does X, Y, or Z? And it could be a minor thing or even a major thing, like their child has you know, killed somebody because they were drunk driving or they've had a psychotic break and they've raped their girlfriend or something, whatever, right? From the most minor to the most major, the last thing they want to do is send them to prison. They will marshal every resource they have to avoid prison. But you know what? Not because they want their child to avoid responsibility necessarily, but because they understand that their child is worth saving. They understand that prison will be the dropping off point, the death knell, that their child will never escape that. And they understand that if they really want to save their child, their child needs help. So we have the solutions. But what we haven't understood is that other people's children are also worth saving. And that goes to the heart of our deep core racism, our classism. That's what we got to work on. Well, I've always been disturbed by what I see as a lack of empathy in our society. That's it. That's it. It is an empathy crisis. It is a crisis of looking at other people's children and not moralizing and other people's families and not seeing them as worth saving. You are such a powerful voice on this issue, Dr. Thompson. And when I have the privilege of speaking with someone who's such an expert on a particular topic, here's what I want to know. What can I do? What can lawyers do? What can the American College of Trial Lawyers do to assist in any way of trying to help? Thank you for your kind comments. I'm not sure I'm worthy of them, but I do know that for myself anyway, I ask myself that. I, you know, what can I do? I know that you ask yourself that. And I feel like in all of our professions, we ask ourselves from our positions of power, whatever that may be. You know, I'm a professor. I try always to 
think about, you know, how can I help people access education who otherwise might not be able to, or if I have an ability to write in newspapers that other people can't to get my voice out there spreading the word through a book or through a newspaper article. You know, if as an attorney, you have access to the law, attorneys have enormous power to right wrongs, to remedy injustice. And I know that you do that every day. And I think that there's a much more fundamental way in which people with power like attorneys and educated historians make a difference if they want to, but often don't. And that is simply speaking out, you know, just saying what is right rather than just not opening one's mouth when a lot of wrong is being said. Frankly, being a white person and speaking out when horrible stuff comes out of other white people's mouths, saying that it's not right to lock people in cages, even just saying that, you know, saying that we can do this better, pointing out that we wouldn't send our own children to prisons, pointing out that we wouldn't do half of the things that we think is okay to do to other people's families. I mean, just giving voice to things when you have a position of power, I think in this day and age needs to happen because so much that needs to get said doesn't get said except for by people who've already been somehow labeled the lunatic fringe. And maybe that seems so mild of an act, but I don't know. I welcome it when people who I respect a lot just say something that is so common sense. I'm just curious about winning the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, what an accomplishment. More than anything, of course, I was stunned and I was so happy about it. But truly, truly, and I mean this most genuinely, the thing that brings tears to my eyes when I think about it, the people inside of Attica, that just that sticker on the book would give some credibility to their story. And that meant to me everything, their history that they had been telling and telling and telling and everyone was discrediting it. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. You know, you're lying. It didn't happen. And it just when this kind of stamp, you know, it was like, okay, it did happen. And now people will listen, you know. And last year, I worked with Stanley Nelson on the documentary Attica that was a finalist for the Oscar. And many of the survivors of Attica are in that film. And I highly recommend everybody watch that documentary. It's You can watch it on Showtime. And it's a beautiful documentary. And you get to see a lot of the people in the book on this documentary. It's just really, it's a powerful documentary. When we did this documentary, I was reminded all over again, it's like they now get to just tell their story and not be shouted down, not discredited. And that to me, that's what that Pulitzer meant to me. It's such an important validation for their story as so eloquently told by you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Thompson, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today and for you sharing your book with us and everything that has gone into the hard work that you have done to make it happen. And on behalf of the American College of Trial Lawyers, we really appreciate not only the efforts that you've made in this way, but also coming to Rome with us and sharing this story with us. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.